Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a saint who left his career as a soldier to take on the fight of his life. Name, Ioannikius called Ioannikius the Great. Life, 762-846. to 846. Status, Saint. Feast, November 4th. Sometime in the 840s, when the wandering monk Ioannikius was no longer in hiding, when he was a famous man, a delegation of government officials came to ask for his blessing and advice. Out in the crowd a man realized that the moment was right. He ran in, interrupting the meeting, and threw himself at Ioannikius's feet to ask for help. The man had lost his cousin to raiders. It had happened when his cousin was traveling between towns for business. Now, the cousin had been taken away as a slave to Syria, and the man didn't know if he would ever see his cousin again. He had been asking for the Byzantine forces to go and save his cousin, but to no avail. But maybe, the man at Ioannikius's feet said, looking up, hopefully, if someone of Ioannikius's stature were to ask these Byzantine officials for help, something would get done. Ioannikius looked at the officials. Under the scrutiny of the old fighter, they squirmed and finally agreed that something would get done. An expedition would be sent out, just as soon as it was possible to do so, to rescue the man's cousin. The officials hurried off. Ioannikius was left with the man who had asked for help. Perhaps the man thought that now something would get done. But Ioannikius had spent years fighting for Byzantium, and he knew how difficult it would be for a military force to track down a single captive in Syria. Even so, he had words of encouragement for the man who had asked for his help. My son, it isn't right or just to give up on God, who is king over all things, and to put our hope in princes, in whom there is no salvation. For it is better to trust in God than in princes. And one more thing, my son, believe without doubt, and you will see the glory of God. And then, although this is not in the historical record, I strongly suspect that Ioannikius winked. That night, in Syria, the man's cousin was sitting in a slave pen with a group of captives. And then there was someone there with them, a tall, dark stranger, walking among them and telling them quietly to get up. When the cousin got up, he found that the shackles on his legs were unlocked and fell off. The stranger led him and the other slaves 
through the gates and traps of the area where they were being kept. They hurried along in the dark, into some nearby woods. That was where the slavers' dogs caught up with them, barking and growling. And then the stranger was there again, and at the sight of him, the dogs turned and ran back to safety. The slaves pushed on through the forest until they came to the mountains, and the stranger told them of the path that would lead them away and to safety. They set out, but when they looked for him on the way, he was gone. And so the man's cousin made his way back home, and when he did, the man understood Ioannikius's cryptic remark about seeing the glory of God. It was all such a strange event that Peter the monk, writing the life of Ioannikius a few months after the saint's death, knew that many of his readers would doubt it. But if they did, said Peter, they could go and verify the story in the village of Elos. Ask for the nephew of Eugantris, the notary. He was the man who had been freed from slavers in Syria by a tall, dark stranger who very much looked like Ioannikius himself. The story was typical of Ioannikius's hands-on approach. Ioannikius was a doer, someone who was never afraid to take action when action was needed. And he had put his energy to work over the course of his long life, as a pig farmer, a fighter, a bodyguard, a wandering monk, and, perhaps most significantly of all, a participant in the great controversy of his age, the question of icons. The question of icons had been tearing at the fabric of Eastern Christianity for decades. It had begun before Ioannikius was born, in 716, when the Byzantine emperor Leo III became persuaded that icons should not be allowed, that they were, in fact, little better than idols. Even by the 8th century, icons were ancient. In a way, an object like the Shroud of Turin is an icon, on which Christ's face has been preserved. Tradition has it that St. Luke the Evangelist was a writer of icons. And certainly, since the church had emerged from the centuries of persecution under the Roman Empire, Christians had been making icons representing God and the saints. Christians understood that the icon is a way to focus your mind. You wouldn't worship an icon, but you might revere it for what it represents. Critics, however, began to suspect that some Christians were worshipping the icon itself, confusing the symbol for the thing symbolized. Some of the criticisms came from outside of Christianity. Originally, the biggest critics of Christians were pagans. But the pagans had no trouble understanding the difference between revering an icon and worshipping an idol. A pagan idol is a home for a god, even, you might say, a body for a god. A picture of a god is just a picture. Now, as paganism died out in the Eastern Roman Empire, new religions arose to provide critiques, rabbinical Judaism and Islam. Both religions were critical of icons because they saw any depiction of god as idolatrous. And some Christians were persuaded by this critique, and gradually they convinced the emperor Leo III, to join them and become an iconoclast. Many Orthodox Christians, and especially many monks, 
lined up to defend icons. The monks had the Western Church on their side. But that very fact made the controversy bigger, turning it into a question about the emperor's power. And then it got ugly. Iconoclasts smashed icons and punished monks who refused to do the same. The controversy went on, with several emperors taking the side of the iconoclasts. Churchmen were forced to take sides and were martyred. Iconoclasts went from destroying icons to destroying monasteries. If the monks were the champions of icons, the champions of iconoclasm were found in the imperial army. The army's iconoclasm only increased when Leo III was succeeded by Constantine V, who was both an iconoclast and a very effective commander. And it was around that time that military recruiters in a distant part of the empire encountered a strong, tall pig farmer named Ioannikius. They recruited him. Ioannikius moved up through the army. Over the next two decades, emperors came and went, and Ioannikius served in their campaigns. His size and strength helped him to be brought into the elite group called the Excubitors. They were loyal to the emperor, and they were diehard iconoclasts. At one time, the Excubitors were used as imperial bodyguards, but by now they were a field unit. However, one of Ioannikus's biographers tells us that he was so trusted that he did spend time guarding the imperial family. And so, when the emperor Constantine VI led a strike force into Bulgarian territory to assert Byzantine power, Ioannikius was part of that expedition. As they marched to the fortress of Markeli, near modern Karnabat in the southeast of Bulgaria, something was bothering Ioannikus. Some time ago he had met a monk, possibly a prisoner or someone that his unit was tasked with punishing. Ioannikius had made the mistake of trying to persuade the monk of iconoclasm. Instead, it was Ioannikius who found himself persuaded. Now, he couldn't get the arguments in favor of icons out of his head. He was more and more worried that he was on the wrong side. By the summer of 792, the young emperor Constantine VI was facing down the Bulgarians near Marcelli. But young Constantine was no warrior. He was going into battle on the advice of an astrologer. Compared to the Byzantines, the Bulgarians were better led, better organized, and they were using a new piece of military technology. The Bulgarian infantry was equipped with a weapon like a lasso on the end of a pole, which would allow them to snare Byzantine heavy cavalry and drag them off their horses to be hacked to death on the ground. The battle was a disaster. The Bulgarian leader, Kardam, managed to sneak a cavalry detachment around the Byzantines to strike from the rear, and the Byzantine army broke and retreated. In the thick of the fighting, a noble, some said it was the emperor himself, was snared by a Bulgarian infantryman. As the noble was being dragged from his horse, Ioannikus rode in to the rescue, slashing at the infantryman and freeing the noble, saving his life. Even in the chaos of the defeat, Ioannikus could hope to be rewarded for this act of courage. This was the chance every soldier hoped for, and with the noble's help, Ioannikus could become an officer 
perhaps even in time a noble himself. But as he rode back to Markelli, Ioannicus realized he didn't want that. God was drawing him in an entirely different direction. Ioannicus took advantage of the confusion of the defeated army to slip out of Markelli and make his way into the mountains of modern Turkey. He couldn't stop thinking about his conversation with the monk. He wanted to hear more. He found what he was looking for in a mountain monastery. Ioannicus learned and studied. He didn't just become more convinced of the value of icons. He became one of their fiercest defenders. And for a little while, politics left him alone there to learn. The iconoclast heresy had faded away when Empress Irene, a not-so-secret iconophile even while her late husband was alive, brought icons back into the churches. But then, in 813, Leo V came to power, and iconoclasm came roaring back. Suddenly, Ioannikius's vocal defense of icons made him a target. So, he became a wandering monk and hermit, climbing through the mountains to go from place to place and monastery to monastery. On the way, he met and encouraged the ordinary people, helping them with their problems. When he met a nun who had abandoned her vocation, Ioannikius listened to her troubles, and after the conversation, she found the courage to return and try again. Ioannikius healed the sick who came to him, and he spoke to people who were losing faith in a church where many of the senior clergy had given in to the emperor's demands out of fear. Ioannikius defended Christianity the way it had always been. People were encouraged by the sight of the big wanderer coming through the mountain passes, walking along with his staff, on the top of which he had attached a cross. In the villages where Ioannikius stayed, churches began to grow again. He would stay to teach and heal and cast out demons, and then he would move on again, always one step ahead of the imperial agents. For Ioannikius, the mission was out here, among ordinary people, people who were losing faith. Others were fighting the political battles. One monk, Methodius of Syracuse, had taken the bold step of writing to the emperor Michael II to try to persuade him to stop the persecutions. Michael II had the monk flogged and then locked in a tomb. Up in the mountains, Ioannikius began to receive prophetic visions. By now it seemed that iconoclasm would go on forever, as emperor after emperor embraced the heresy. The visions told him it wasn't true, and Ioannikius passed on that hope to those he spoke with. Ioannikius said that not only was iconoclasm not going to win, the heresy was almost at an end. As Ioannikius had predicted, there was one more iconoclast emperor. This was Theophilus who renewed the persecutions. As the public face of icons, Methodius, who had been let out of the tomb, was beaten and imprisoned once again. In the mountains, moving from place to place, fighting his holy guerrilla war, Ioannikius told people that the end was in sight. And then, in 842, Theophilus died, and the heresy of iconoclasm died with him.
icons were returned to churches in an event that Catholics of the Eastern Rite still remember as the Feast of Orthodoxy. There was no one better suited to step into the role of Patriarch of Constantinople than the courageous monk and saint, Methodius. Methodius said about healing the church, replacing those who had been too frightened to speak for what was right. By now, Ioannikius was 94 years old. The patriarch Methodius traveled out to the mountains to see him, and just in time, for, as Ioannikius told the patriarch, he himself had only days to live. Perhaps Methodius was expecting to find a withered old man, but Ioannikius was still on his feet and full of energy and ideas, and it was the patriarch who went down the mountain, refreshed and encouraged by the man he had met and the life he had witnessed. These were Ioannikius's good deeds, Peter the monk concludes his biography. Then again, as Peter points out, calling them good deeds isn't quite enough. These were the victories of a warrior, the prizes of a valiant soldier. <laughs>